find your seats again. Well, good morning. It is good to, uh, to gather with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at RGC, and I look forward to getting to know you if we haven't had the chance to meet yet. There we go. Um, before we dive into God's Word, I'm looking forward to doing that with you. I'm going to have Elizabeth come up. She's going to read our sermon text this morning out of Ephesians 3. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be known, made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we thank you for this moment with this group of people. God, this is your providence, that this is who is here today, right now in this moment, that we get to be together, to lift our voices in praise to you and now to open up your word. And so God, I pray that you would help us by your spirit now to be attentive to your word, that we might be changed, that we might be challenged and transformed by it. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. So we have a routine with our kids every night before they go to bed. We read with them, we pray with them, we sing some songs before we say goodnight and walk out of their room. My two oldest boys have really gotten into a series of short biographies about historical figures called Who Was. We've read a ton of them, like Who Was George Washington Carver? Who Was Frederick Douglass? Who Was Alexander Hamilton? You know, in reading these books to our kids, our kids have learned a lot. But so have I. I mean, that's the nature of a biography, is that you get to learn about someone's life. And sometimes in learning about someone else's life, you learn something about yourself as well. We've been in a sermon series over the last month called Faithful Church, where we're opening up God's word and really looking to see who God has called us to be together. And this is always crucial for any church to really understand who are we supposed to be? What does it mean for us to be faithful? But it's especially important right now for our church. As we've had these two congregations, these two groups of people in Sojourn Church and Redeeming Grace come together to be this one new church. And if you missed any part of this series, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it online. Last week, Mark preached out of Acts chapter 2, and he challenged us on what it means to be faithful members. Today, we're back in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to see what it means to be a faithful church on faithful mission. What we'll see in this text, though, is that Paul takes a little bit of a detour and shares some autobiographical information with us. He, he shares a bit about his life. But just like those biographies, we can look at Paul's life and see that there are implications for our lives as well. 
See, in order for us to be a faithful church, we not only need to grow as disciples together, grow as followers of Jesus together, but go together and make new disciples. So what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through these verses and try and understand what's going on in Paul's life here and then draw out three implications for us. Three implications for us to be a faithful church on faithful mission. Listen, my hope for you today, no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey, is that you would be captivated by the gravity of the gospel. Captivated by the gravity of the gospel and then be compelled to share it with others. So with that, let's dive into Ephesians 3 and may God bless the preaching of his word. The book of Ephesians isn't an academic book. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul was writing to a local church. A letter where Paul expounds on the riches of God's grace lavished on us in and through Christ. And in addition to that, he shows us that because of that grace, there are implications for our life, how we should live. And he begins this transition to these implications in chapter 3. In verse 7, he says, he begins by saying, of this gospel, of this gospel. Now, I don't want to assume that you know what that means. Now, a lot of you have been around the church for a long time. Some of you have been in this church for a really, really long time. Others of you are new to church or just kind of checking out who Jesus is. But no matter where you find yourself, I don't want to assume that you understand what he means by this. It's important for us to understand it because it's the best news in all of the world. The best news in all of the world and the only way to everlasting joy and reconciliation to God. So what is Paul talking about when he says of this gospel? Well, to understand it, to understand the gravity of it, we need to go back to the beginning. Our God created everything out of nothing, called everything into existence by the power of his word. And the pinnacle of his creation was creating man and woman in his image. That we would be like him in creativity and in character having dominion over creation as vice regents under his gracious authority. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, didn't want to work with God or be ruled by God, but they wanted to be self-sovereigns, ruling themselves independent of God. This rebellion is what the Bible calls sin, and it infects and affects every aspect of all of us. We keep trying in our lives, even right now, to assert ourselves into a place, into a position that we have no right to hold, no ability to hold that wholly belongs to God. And this is not without consequence. God told Adam and Eve that the outcome of their sinful obstinance was physical and spiritual death, that they'd be separated from God, essentially becoming spiritual zombies, unwilling and unable to have a right relationship with him. And that's true for every single one of us. That's how all of us are born into this world. But it isn't the end of the story. No, God pursued his people to bring about redemption and he sent his only son to be the means of that redemption, the remedy for our rescue out of our sin, out of our rebellion, out of our spiritual death. Jesus came to us as one of us to rescue us. He came and lived a perfect life on this earth, obeying the Father completely and faithfully to the very end. He went to a cross dying on that cross, not for his sin, not for anything he'd done wrong, but for what we've done wrong, for our rebellion, taking on all of our sin and all of our shame on his back that we might be set free. 
And Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin, the consequences of our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life, this reconciliation to God, it's a free gift because you can't do anything to earn it. You can't manufacture this on your own. It has nothing to do with your knowledge or your ability or your background. It's all from God and all to the praise of his name. And that's Paul's point in highlighting this magnificent mystery as he calls it in Ephesians chapter three. Look at back at it, verse six. It says, this mystery, meaning the gospel, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is amazing news. This rescuing and redeeming grace, it isn't just for one ethnicity. It isn't just for one group of people. It's for men and women from every tribe, every language, and every nation. It's the only thing that tears down the dividing wall of hostility. It's the only thing that reconciles us to God and to one another. So listen to me. This is what qualifies you to be saved from your sin. Nothing about you, but only the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you. So whether you're hearing about this for the very first time in the entirety of your life or you've heard it thousands of times before, it really doesn't matter. What matters is, is it having, the, having effect in your life in this moment? Have you placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus? Do you have faith in it now? See, this isn't academic for Paul and it shouldn't be for us either. This is personal. The gospel changed everything for him and it changes everything for you as well. Listen to how Paul talks about its effect in his own life, verses seven through nine. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What Paul's talking about here, what he's referencing is his conversion and his commissioning. See, Paul was a zealous guy. He was a, a very religious man, but he didn't have a real relationship with God. Paul was concerned about following rules and, and trying to be a good person. He didn't have an understanding of grace. And this led him to persecute followers of Jesus who were soaking in God's grace. But then Jesus invaded Paul's life. On his way to go persecute Christians, Jesus shows up and he invades Paul's life and he reconciles him. He raises up from the dead and gives him new life, makes him alive in Christ. And then he commissions him and says, Paul, I want you to go and I want you to take the good news of this grace to the nations. And you know what? Paul is overwhelmed by that. He, he's undone by it. I mean, think about this. God could have saved Paul and then said, hey, I saved you, but could you just go sit in the back and be quiet? Because of everything that you've done, I mean, you were, you were pretty wicked. No, that's not what happens because that isn't the nature of grace. No, this man who was once the greatest persecutor of the church, now describing himself as the least of all the saints, is sent, not sidelined. He's sent as a minister and a messenger of the very good news that rescued him from his sin. 
and rescued him from himself. There's something important for us to learn in this. Whether you're already following Jesus or not, Paul's past doesn't define him. It humbles him. What about you? Your past need not define you either, but instead be an opportunity for you to testify to God's grace, to testify to what God has done and is doing in your life. God can save anyone and God can use anyone. Listen, you could be the least and the lowest from the world's perspective and still be faithful to make much of Jesus. And Paul's an example of that for us. The mystery of the gospel was revealed to him, now it's proclaimed through him. To bring light in places of darkness. What grace! And now God wants to do the same thing in and through you. He wants to do the same thing in and through us. Which leads us to verse 10. For what reason is Paul called and commissioned? Look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul wasn't saved and sent for himself, but for the church. So that as men and women from different backgrounds and different cultures and different experiences are redeemed, this manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Might be put on display, this mystery of redemption. First Peter chapter one tells us that the angels long to look into this mystery of grace. And you know what? Now they are better able to glorify God more fully as they look at you. And they see God's redemptive plan on display. Satan, the great enemy of God, thought that he defeated God when he attempted Adam and Eve to rebel against God. But God's plans and God's purposes and God's promises cannot be defeated. Our sovereign overcoming God made a way and sent his son to rescue and redeem. Satan again thought, ahaha, got you when Jesus was crucified on that cross. But our glorious resurrecting God raised him up from the grave and put an exclamation point on Jesus' final declaration when he said, it is finished. God's not calling audibles at the line like Peyton Manning, right? Like when, when Peyton Manning sees the defense changing, and he calls Omaha, Omaha, right? He's not changing this up. God's not caught off guard. Like all of a sudden, something new's coming up and he doesn't know what to do. No, verse 11 tells us this is according to his eternal purposes, realized in and through Jesus. This has always been a part of God's plan. Satan can't thwart that. He can't come against that. All of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. This means then, if you have placed your faith in him, then you are united to Jesus. You're united to him, and now you have the ability to boldly and confidently come before God with anything and everything. That's what he's saying in verse 12. We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You can come before God with anything and everything. Guess what? He'll never reject you. He's never going to push you away. He's never going to condemn you. He's never going to abandon you. You are his now and forever. This is the glorious mystery of grace. The manifold wisdom of God on display through us that causes angels to long to look and demons to shudder. Now manifold, that's not a word we probably use very often. It means multifaceted. See, God's grace isn't one dimensional. 
It's not simple. It's seen in the church as men and women from every tribe, language, and nation come to know salvation and eternal life through Christ. It's seen in rescuing people out of the kingdom of darkness and transferring them into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's seen in people not who think they have it all together, but those who know that they don't. Not by any effort or work of their own, but only in the extravagant mercy of a mighty and merciful God. Listen, the church's very existence, its very existence is the means by which God discloses to all powers and people his lavish redeeming grace. All of us, a bunch of rebels made children of God. Amazing. But here's the thing I, don't want, to, I want us to miss this morning. Not only is the church the product of the reconciling work of God, it's his agency to bring it about in the world. The saved are now sent. That means, listen, that you, the church, are God's plan A. God's plan A for redemption and restoration among our neighbors and the nations. And that matters significantly here and now. It matters for us in this time and in this place. This church is positioned physically in the middle of Fairfax County. We're right smack in the middle of a, of a county that has 1.2 million people in it, in a metro region that has 6 million people in it. And God has sovereignly placed us here in this particular time, in this particular place. And as two churches have come together as one church, it isn't so we can circle the wagons and protect, it's so we can go into the world and proclaim. To make much of Christ, to be better together in that way. So all of this leads us to these three implications for our life together. From what we see Paul talking about his own life and our life together as a church. If we are going to be a faithful church, we must be on faithful mission. And if we're going to carry out our faithful mission, we must be a captivated community, a compelling community, and a proclaiming community. We must first be a captivated community. I mean, did you guys catch the way talk, Paul talks about Christ in the gospel in these few verses? Listen to this again. Listen to verses 7 through 9 again. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here's a man who decades after coming to know Christ is still captivated by his grace. He's still in awe of what God's done in his life. He's still blown away by it. After all these years as he writes this letter to the Ephesian church. I wonder if you are. Whether you've been a follower of Jesus for five years, 20, 30 50 years, is the reality of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you still amazing to you? My guess is, is that for some of you, it isn't. You, you aren't captivated by it right now. And I say that, I know that's true for some of you because it's been true for me at different points in time. It doesn't matter that I'm a pastor in a church. There are times in my life where I am more captivated by other things than Jesus. Or I'm more excited about other things than what Christ has done for me in my own life. Maybe you find yourself here in that same place this morning. And if that is the case, it's okay. 
that you're there right now because you don't have to stay there. One of the things that's helped me over and over again to be recaptivated by the grace of the gospel is to remember the weight of my sin and the gloriousness of my Savior. There's so many places in Scripture we could go to see that, to be reminded of that, to see our vision enlarged, to see how great Christ really is. But let's just go back to Ephesians 2 again. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, and you were dead. Think about yourself in this, the reality of your own life. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was your reality. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, unwilling and unable to come to God, having no desire for him, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. In the coming ages. Do you know what that means? It's going to take all eternity for us to comprehend grace. Like we have a sliver of it right now. When I look at that, it thinks, I think, man, this is crazy. God saved me. God saved you. Not because we deserved it. Not because he owed us something, but because he lavished his grace on us, because that's who he is. No wonder Paul is captivated by the gospel and then motivated to go and take it to those who have not yet heard or not yet believed. My guess is that on any given day or week, though, some of you are captivated by that and others of you aren't. But that's why we gather together every week. That's why we participate in community group and community life with one another. It's why we need one another. It's why I need you in my life. I need you to remind me of God's grace in my own life. I need you to remind me that my identity is in Christ and nothing else. We need one another to help each other, not be apathetic towards grace, to not put Jesus on the back burner, but to be captivated by our King and all he's done for us. Church, there are so many people around you right now, people like your neighbors, your coworkers, your children, adult and at home, friends and family, people in need of this new life. And the amazing thing is when we, like Paul, are captivated by grace, we'll long for them to experience it too. See, as a captivated community, we can then be a compelling community to our neighbors and the nations. Verse 10 says that we, the church, display the manifold wisdom of God. We display the gloriousness of the gospel to angels and demons. Our existence is compelling to them. And if it's compelling to them, it will be for our neighbors too. This comes back to who we are together. Before Jesus' death and resurrection, he declared, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not, shall not prevail against it. I love this. Jesus didn't ascend to the Father and leave us with tokens and trinkets or a manual. No, Jesus created a people. Darkness is present in our world. The enemy is seeking to distract and to divide and devour. But guess what? Hell can't hold back the redeemed. 
This is what Paul's talking about in verse 10. Our very existence is a testimony to the life-altering, resurrecting grace that comes in and through the gospel. That's why we want to be a church that's only explainable because of the gospel. Acknowledging our differences, acknowledging our diversity, and testifying to the fact that it is soaked and saturated and sustained by grace. You may be thinking, what does this have to do with mission? What does it have to do with people coming to know and follow Christ? Everything. The world around us congregates around causes and sameness. But we come together because of Christ and him crucified. What unites us together is our king and his kingdom. That makes us a compelling community because there's nothing else like it in all the world. This gets back to the text that Mark preached last week from Acts chapter 2. The church came together under the banner of Jesus. And it loved one another. It served, it learned, it grew together. And then in verse 47 of Acts chapter 2, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As the church was being the church, more and more people were coming to know Christ. See, when we invite people into our life together that don't yet know Christ, they have the opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. They have opportunity to observe and experience the reality of grace lived out with one another, and that's attractive. Not because we're attractive, but because of Christ in us. I've seen this over and over again. A friend being invited to a community group that doesn't yet know Jesus and gets to experience and see community lived out under the banner of Jesus, crossing from death to life. I've seen people invite coworkers or neighbors to come and gather with the church on a Sunday or come to an event with other followers of Jesus and just get to see what it looks like for people who are passionate about Christ, who are captivated by him, how they live life with one another, and people crossing from death to life. Maybe some of you are here today because of that. Either you weren't yet a follower of Christ and now have become one, or maybe you're still in that place where you haven't yet trusted in him, but you're seeing it lived out before your very eyes. Listen, if we are going to be a faithful church on faithful mission, we also must be a compelling community. That our life together really does look different than the way the world is. Now, we're not going to get this right all the time. We're not going to get this right all the time. But when we don't, let's be quick to repent and quick to realign our hearts and our minds and our Savior, seeking to love God and love others more than we love ourselves. Invite people in. Invite people into your life and into this community so they can see how messy people, still in process, cling to Jesus and are committed to one another. I have a resource I want to point you to. There's a short book called The Compelling Community by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop. I've got about five or six copies of this. If you'd like one at the end of the service today, just come up front and grab one. I'd love for you to read it to encourage you to have a vision for what it looks like to be a compelling community. Listen, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm so glad that you're here. Jump in with us. You're going to see all the, the cracks and the faults and the missteps and ways that we don't get everything right. But I hope above all of that, what you see is how great our Savior really is. We don't only invite people in, though, church. We also go out, which means we also are called to be a proclaiming community. In verse 7, Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister. I was made a servant. Mark talked about being faithful servants a few weeks ago. It doesn't stop with Paul. He isn't the only minister. He isn't the only servant of Christ. If you are in Christ, you also are a minister of the gospel. 
You are saved. You are called now to go out with the unsearchable riches of Christ. Because we have to understand the gospel is a message to be proclaimed. We not only do that week in and week out as we gather on Sundays, but also as we scatter throughout the week to our neighborhoods, schools, and workplaces. Now, when you hear that, what I don't want you to think is this is an, another added burden on an already busy life. Brothers and sisters, it's a glorious privilege that God gives us to be a part of seeing the lost saved. You get to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does that look like for our church? Well, there's three main ways that we live this out together. Local mission, global mission, and church planting. When it comes to local mission, here is our mission strategy, okay? You might want to write this down. Here it is. It's you. It's you guys. We don't have an evangelism team that does evangelism for our church. No, we have a commissioned group of people who every week gather together and then are sent out of here to go into the world and tell about our Redeemer. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have some crazy strategy or plan. What it means is that you can be an ordinary person doing ordinary things, but with gospel intentionality. You go to your workplace, not as a worker. You go into the cover of your job, but you go as a missionary, as an ambassador for Christ. You go to campus, not as a student. That's your cover for being there. You go there as an ambassador for Christ. We have opportunities all around us to take the good news to those around us. But listen, that requires you to actually get to know your neighbors and get to know your coworkers and your classmates and let them get to know you as well. There's a quote by John Stott that is always so convicting to me. He writes this, it comes more natural to us to shout the gospel at people from a distance than to involve ourselves deeply in their lives, to think ourselves into their culture and their problems to feel with them in their pains. We're not going out just to shout from people at a distance. We're going to enter into life with them and invite them into our life as well. That takes time and it takes effort, but it's crucial to seeing people come to know and follow Jesus. If that's not true of your life right now, if you don't know your neighbors, if you don't know your coworkers, your classmates, that's okay because it's still today and there's still a chance for you to change that. If you don't know how to do this, that's okay too, because there are a lot of men and women in this church who are faithful to doing this. Find them, learn from them. And guess what? We get to do it together. Invite each other and your friends that don't yet know Christ to hang out with one another. Let's help each other be a proclaiming community. That's the informal ways of doing that. There are some formal ways we can be a proclaiming community as well in the life of our church. I just want to highlight one for you this morning, and that's getting involved with a ministry called For the Nations. For the Nations is a a ministry here in the D.C. area that seeks to teach uh, different people who are coming here from all over the world English and how to engage in life here. But it's centered on Christ, often using God's word as the means to do that. Danny Wegerbauer is a member here at RGC and is on staff with For the Nations. There's a lot of opportunities coming up for ways you can get involved with that. There's a flyer, a a stack of flyers out in the lobby that you can grab one before you go to learn more about opportunities that are going on this summer. And in the follow-up email today after service, there'll be some more information as well. Listen, we're not only a proclaiming community locally, but also globally. We long to send men and women from this church to the unreached around the world. We already have several missionaries on the field as a church, and we're about to send another. 
David Curlin was just approved and appointed by the International Mission Board to serve in the second largest unreached people group in the world in Japan. And this is a crazy thing. In God's providence, he's going to be about 45 minutes away from where the Sakaguchis are. We're going to have more people going out here in the coming months. See, God changed David's life and now David's being sent. And there are others here today that I am confident God wants to do the same thing. Let me ask you, what's keeping you from going? What's keeping you from going to those who have not yet heard and not yet believed? And lastly, we want to be a church planting church, both sending and supporting those who will go to see new churches started all around this area and all around the world. If the local church is God's plan A for reaching our neighbors in the nations, then we have to strive to see more churches started in communities and countries that don't have them. Brothers and sisters, will you be praying Asking God how he wants you to be involved. It's not a matter of if he wants you to be involved, but how. How does he want you to be involved in taking the gospel to those who haven't yet heard or believed? Will you be praying that God would help our church to live this out together? Look, at times it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Paul knows that. Look at verse 13. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul's in prison because he's faithful to be a proclaiming Christian. But he doesn't look at that as not discouraged, and he doesn't want the Ephesians to be either. Instead, he's encouraged. He sees God at work. He knows God wants to save people. And so he goes as a sent one, and so do we. The church will likely be marginalized more and more in the coming days. And we can grieve that, but we don't have to give up. We can be sad about that, but not fearful. Because as we look throughout history, we see the church has thrived in the margins. And I am confident that God can do the same thing here and now because our God is faithful and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Brothers and sisters, the mystery hidden through the ages has been made known to us so that through us, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Together, we have the opportunity to spread the word of our king and the influence of his kingdom. Listen, the greatest, most miraculous, supernatural sign and gift that we should long to see in our church is dead men and women coming to life. Who are we that God would use us? Who are you that God would give you the privilege and joy to tell others about Jesus? Who we are are living testimonies once dead, now alive, men and women made new in Christ. What might God do among our neighbors and the nations if we are a faithful church on faithful mission? May we be a captivated community, a compelling community, and a proclaiming community for the glory of God and the good of others. Amen. As a first response to the preaching of God's word and a call to faithful mission, we're going to take communion together. As we eat and drink the elements of the bread and the cup, we're refreshed and reminded of the truth that it's in and through the finished work of Jesus that we are not only saved, but also sent. And it's because of that we, that we don't lose heart. Because we remember the gospel, we don't lose heart. When things are hard or when we fall or fail, to, fail or falter along the way, it's a meal that helps us to be recaptivated by grace and compelled to display it and declare it to those around us. And we eat and drink together as an act of unity. We come to the table as a family, a family in process who are desperate 
for the grace of God. So if you don't have the elements, they're at the back of the rows down here on the floor and along the railing in the balcony. Go ahead and grab those. But listen, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, again, I'm so grateful you're here this morning. We would just ask you not to take communion because this is a testimony of how captivated we are by grace, how desperate we are for it, and how much we need Jesus. If you don't yet know Christ, don't take communion, but take Christ today. Pray right now in this moment that God would save you and open up your eyes and give you new life and then let somebody around you know. We'd love to help you on your spiritual journey. For those of you that will take it, go ahead and get the elements out and ready. The bread is a picture of Jesus' body broken for us. Together, let's eat now for spiritual refreshment and in remembrance of him.